This is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the Invasive Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about a topic in toxicology, salicylate overdose. It's important to note that the main ingredient in aspirin, salicylate, is present in many other over-the-counter formulations. A few examples include topical medications for acne, the antidiarrheal medication Pepto-Bismol, and oil of wintergreen, which is a common ingredient of Chinese herbal medications, and ointments for musculoskeletal pain, such as Bengay. While the focus of this podcast will be on aspirin overdose, just know that the clinical manifestations and management of all salicylate intoxications are similar. I will be using the terms aspirin and salicylate interchangeably, but just keep in mind that I'm referring to anything containing salicylate. The use of aspirin in children has decreased due to its association with RISE syndrome and the creation of other non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, but it's still a widely used analgesic as well as an antiplatelet medication used in patients with cardiovascular and cerebrovascular disease. Therefore, aspirin overdose is a situation that you must be prepared to handle. This episode was written by Dr. Andrea Sarchi under the supervision and direction of Dr. Michael Passafaro, an EM attending affiliated with the NYIT College of Osteopathic Medicine. As always, this podcast has represents views, opinions, about defense, the U.S. Army, and the Fort Hood Post Command. When you enter the room, a patient with aspirin poisoning may appear pale, diaphoretic, or in respiratory distress. Their vital signs may include tachypnea, hyperthermia, hypotension, or tachycardia. The initial history questions we ask the patient are the same as with any poisoning. We should try and find out what the patient took, the dosage, the time of ingestion, and whether it was a suicide attempt. We should also ask whether there was a single ingestion or repeated ones, whether any co-ingestions were taken, and if the patient has any comorbid conditions. When asking about the dosage, be sure to ask how much the dose per tablet was and how many tablets the patient took. If the patient doesn't know, you can ask how many tablets were in the container or how much of the container they had. Death from salicylate intoxication can occur after the ingestion of 10 to 30 grams in adults and as little as 3 grams in children. If the ingestion was intentional, then ask about co-ingestions because it's important because one-third of adults who intentionally overdose on aspirin also ingest one or more other medications. We also need to get an idea of what kind of symptoms the patient is experiencing. Ask the patient if they're having any ringing in their ears, aka tinnitus. Next, ask the patient if they are experiencing any nausea or vomiting. Vomiting may occur three to eight hours post-ingestion, and is due to aspirin's direct effects of irritating the gastric mucosa and simulating the chemoreceptor trigger zone in the medulla. Another effect that aspirin may have is altered mental status, and this can present as agitation, confusion, or restlessness. Coma is a rare occurrence, though the patient may become lethargic as they start to fatigue and their metabolic condition deteriorates. The altered mental status is a result of several mechanisms. Aspirin has a direct toxicity on the CNS, it causes cerebral edema, and it causes low blood sugar in the brain, known as neuroglycopenia. The patient may also experience seizures, and these are often due to either neuroglycopenia or to the direct effects of salicylate. Finally, ask the patient if they have shortness of breath. If so, this could represent pulmonary edema, so be sure to do a thorough lung examination. Pulmonary edema will occur most often in elderly patients on chronic aspirin therapy, but make sure you consider it in anyone with salicylate toxicity. Keep in mind that if the ingestion occurred less than an hour ago, the patient may be totally asymptomatic. 
with regards to the physical exam, remember that aspirin stimulates the respiratory center of the medulla, so pay close attention to the patient's rate and depth of breathing, since they may both be elevated. Increased depth of breathing, known as hyperpnea, is an early clinical sign that may help you establish a diagnosis. Hypotension may be present due to vomiting and insensible fluid losses, which can also explain tachycardia. Hyperthermia can occur as a result of aspirin's direct effect on the mitochondria, and this generates heat. Even if this finding is not present, you should not exclude the possibility of an aspirin overdose. Next, you should evaluate for the presence of diaphoresis, rapid respiratory rate, and hearing loss. Also, be sure to check the patient's mental status. If the patient is altered, this is a sign of CNS toxicity. If there are positive findings on lung exam, such as crackles, or if the patient exhibits any signs of hypoxemia, then order a chest x-ray. Now let's talk about the labs and tests we're going to order. One of the first tests you should order in a patient you suspect has aspirin toxicity is a serum salicylate level. This value will tell you how the patient is responding to therapy and whether more aggressive measures, such as hemodialysis, are necessary. The normal therapeutic range for salicylate concentration in both kids and adults is between 10 and 30 milligrams per deciliter, with values above 40 indicating toxicity. If the patient is exhibiting any of the signs or symptoms of aspirin toxicity that we previously discussed, their serum salicylate level should be measured every two hours until there is a decrease from the peak measurement. You should also continue measuring the salicylate level until the serum level is less than 40 and the patient is asymptomatic with the normal rate and depth of breathing. It's very important to continue obtaining these measurements until you see that downward trend in the salicylate levels. The common mistake here is to think that a patient who took a bunch of aspirin as a suicide attempt is okay because their salicylate level falls into the therapeutic range. The patient then gets admitted to the floor or a psychiatric hospital while their salicylate level continues to climb, and this leads to a bad outcome. You must trend these levels as an inpatient to make sure they are downtrending and the patient is asymptomatic. It's also important to note that serum salicylate concentration might not rise for 5-6 to six hours after ingestion if the patient used enteric-coated tablets or if there is a delay in absorption due to spasm in the pylorus or Biazor formation. While serum salicylate is an important measurement for guiding therapy, it must always be interpreted in the context of the patient's clinical status and blood pH. For example, if the serum salicylate level is decreasing but the patient is becoming more acidotic and has worsening mental status, this could indicate that the aspirin is distributing into the CNS and other tissues, which could indicate severe toxicity despite the decreased salicylate level. Another test we need to order is a basic metabolic panel. We need to assess the patient's electrolytes for abnormalities that may develop and for the patient's acid-base status. With salicylate toxicity, there is usually an anion gap metabolic acidosis. However, it's important to be aware that even patients with significant poisoning can still have a normal anion gap. In addition, since aspirin is eliminated through the kidneys, the patient may develop an elevated BUN and creatinine. It's important to monitor the patient's renal function because oliguric renal failure is an absolute indication for hemodialysis. Finally, we want to look at the glucose since hypoglycemia may develop with aspirin overdose. One test that will give you some valuable information, especially if the patient is sick, is a blood gas. While the old school way of doing this is doing our arterial blood gas, for most patients, a venous blood gas will be accurate enough to make decisions. 
The blood cast can be used to monitor the patient's ventilation and acid base status. As we mentioned before, aspirin stimulates the respiratory center of the medulla. This leads to tachypnea and hyperpnea, which then results in a respiratory alkalosis. Since salicylates also uncouple oxidative phosphorization, cells rely on anaerobic metabolism for energy, and the result is a buildup of lactic acid. The accumulation of lactic acid and other organic acids leads to an anion gap metabolic acidosis. Most patients will have a mixed primary respiratory alkalosis and primary metabolic acidosis, and less commonly, just a primary respiratory alkalosis. Respiratory acidosis rarely occurs early in aspirin toxicity. If it does occur, this suggests that the patient may have co-ingested a respiratory depressant. If respiratory acidosis occurs later in aspirin toxicity, this indicates respiratory failure and the need for both endotracheal intubation and hemodialysis. On the ABG, a respiratory acidosis is indicated by a rising PCO2 level. A few additional tests that are useful are an EKG and serum acetaminophen level. An EKG can be useful to look for an occult ingestion in the case of an intentional overdose. For example, the patient may have overdosed on tricyclic antidepressants in addition to aspirin, and TCAs can widen the QRS complex, prolong the QTC, and produce a tall R-wave in AVR that would be evident on an EKG. In addition, since aspirin overdose can cause hypokalemia, an EKG may be your first clue that the patient's potassium level was low before your labs come back. An acetaminophen level is mandatory on all of these patients because it is a common co-ingestion in suicide attempts and patients can be completely asymptomatic even with large overdoses. Furthermore, many drug preparations such as Excedrin contain both aspirin and acetaminophen. Finally, you'll want to get a pregnancy test in all women of childbearing age instead of baseline coags. Although rare, a large aspirin overdose can cause hepatotoxicity and lead to coagulation abnormalities. This can lead to elevations in the patient's PT and INR. Obtaining a creatinine kinase, or CK, is probably a good idea if the patient was found down for an unknown period of time, since you don't want to miss rhabdomyolysis. As for imaging studies, there aren't many that we perform for aspirin overdose. The patient's physical exam will usually help us determine whether any imaging is needed. If the patient has altered mental status that isn't clearly a result of something simple, such as hypoglycemia, then imaging with a head CT is necessary. As we mentioned before, pulmonary edema can occur with aspirin overdose. If the patient complains of any shortness of breath, or there are any positive findings on lung examination, such as crackles, then you should order a chest x-ray. Alright, so let's summarize what we've covered thus far. As with any poisoning, you should first find out what the patient took, the dosage, and the time of the ingestion. You should also try to find out whether or not this was a suicide attempt, whether there was a single ingestion or repeated ones, whether any co-ingestions were taken, and whether the patient has any comorbid conditions. Typical symptoms in a patient with psilocyte toxicity include tinnitus, nausea and vomiting, altered mental status, and shortness of breath. So be sure to ask the patient if they are experiencing any of these symptoms. On physical exam, vital signs may show tachypnea, hyperthermia, hypotension, or tachycardia. The patient may also have an increased depth of breathing, known as hyperpnea. Since aspirin can cause pulmonary edema, be sure to perform a thorough lung examination and order chest x-ray if there are any positive findings. In regards to labs, the serum salicylate level is an important test because it helps gauge the patient's response to therapy and will tell you whether or not hemodialysis is necessary. 
On a basic metabolic panel, we assess for hypoglycemia, electrolyte abnormalities such as hypokalemia, and signs of renal failure such as an increased BUN and creatinine. A venous or arterial blood gas can be used to monitor the patient's oxygenation, ventilation, and acid-base status. The most common finding is a mixed primary respiratory alkalosis and primary metabolic acidosis. Additional tests that are useful include an EKG and serum and CMFN level to look for evidence of a cold ingestion. You also want to get a pregnancy test in all women of childbearing age and a set of baseline coags. A creatinine kinase or CK is probably a good idea if the patient was found down for an unknown amount of time. For imaging studies, a CT scan is necessary if the patient has altered mental status that isn't clearly due to something simple like hypoglycemia. A chest x-ray should be done if the patient has any signs or symptoms of pulmonary edema, such as crackles or shortness of breath. Now let's move on to the management of a patient with an aspirin overdose. As with all patients, we must first assess the airway, breathing, and circulation. It's important to note that airway management can actually exacerbate the condition of those with salicylate poisoning. The reason for this is that the patient's acidosis can worsen during the apneic period when sedation and paralysis are performed for intubation. The increased carbon dioxide level leads to a decrease in blood pH, which causes salicylate anions to become pronated and diffuse across the blood-brain barrier, causing further CNS toxicity. Therefore, the only time you should intubate patients with aspirin overdose is in those patients with hypoventilation, which would show up as respiratory acidosis on an ABG. Respiratory acidosis, or seeing the patient tiring out, indicates respiratory failure. So intubation is necessary to maintain a high tidal volume and a rapid respiratory rate. For the patient's breathing, administer oxygen is necessary. For the patient's circulation, we must replace the insensible fluid losses from vomiting, diaphoresis, hyperthermia, and elevated metabolic rate. Give the patient a 1-2 to two liter normal saline bolus to make up for these losses. If you want to be really slick, give the patient D5NS to give the patient glucose since aspirin overdose can make them hypoglycemic. The patient can still have decreased cerebral glucose concentration with a normal serum glucose due to the direct effects of aspirin. Next, you should administer bicarbonate to the patient. The short answer here is that bicarb alkalinizes the urine, which will help the patient excrete excess aspirin in the urine. The initial dose of sodium bicarbonate is 1 to 2 milliequivalents per kilogram, given as an IV bolus, followed by an infusion of 100 to 150 milliequivalents in 1 liter of D5W. This mixture will create a nice tonic solution that can be administered to the patient. One thing to be careful here is to never add sodium bicarbonate to normal saline. The extra salt in the sodium bicarb will add to the sodium in the normal saline, and you will end up with a hypertonic saline solution that won't be good for the patient. The infusion rate should be titrated until the urine pH is 7.5 to 8. An important point to note is that a high alkalotic serum pH is not a contraindication to bicarbonate therapy. Patients with salicylate toxicity often present with a serum pH of 7.5 to 7.55, and we must not hesitate to give bicarbonate based on these findings. However, don't push their pH above 7.6 with bicarb. You'll track this by following the patient's pH on a blood gas. In sick patients, you can follow their pH by inserting an arterial line for frequent ABGs. In less sick patients, venous blood gases should be just fine. I also want to make one point about giving potassium. When we alkalinize the patient with sodium bicarb, their potassium level may fall. Therefore, we should administer potassium with the IV fluids 
even if the patient's potassium level is in the low normal range. GI decontamination with activated charcoal is another possible therapy, but you should do this with caution only in patients within two hours of their ingestion. The initial dose of activated charcoal is one gram per kilogram up to 50 grams PO. We can also give charcoal to innovate patients via an orogastric tube. You should avoid giving patients activated charcoal if they have ultramental status or an unsecured airway, as these situations present a risk for aspiration. Situations where charcoal may be helpful beyond two hours from ingestion are when there is a delayed absorption from enteric coated tablets, pyloraspasm, or bezoar formation. Charcoal is only used for acute cases of aspirin overdose. It's unlikely to have much effect in chronic poisoning since these patients present long after absorption. Whole bowel irrigation is another form of decontamination that can be considered if the patient ingested a massive amount of aspirin, such as an entire bottle of sustained preparation or enteric coated pills. However, studies have not demonstrated a clinical benefit from this treatment. The bottom line on activated charcoal is that the patient either needs to be wide awake and talking or intubated with an orogastric tube and should be done within two hours of ingestion. The benefit of activated charcoal for patient-oriented outcomes, such as mortality, is questionable, so this may be something to talk to your toxicologist about. The final treatment technique we'll discuss is hemodialysis. This option is reserved for patients with signs and symptoms suggestive of severe salicylate toxicity. The indications include a serum salicylate level greater than 100 in acute poisoning or greater than 50 in chronic poisoning. Other indications include altered mental status, endotracheal innovation not attributable to coincessions, renal failure, pulmonary or cerebral edema, and clinical deterioration despite the appropriate supportive care. Even if there is an immediate need for hemodialysis, it's important to consult nephrology early. Having nephrology on board early will make everything go more smoothly in the event hemodialysis is necessary. In addition, some hospitals have medical toxicologists who are available for consultation. They can be a great resource and should always be utilized when available. If you don't have a toxicologist available at your hospital, you can always call your local poison control center. So how do we monitor our patients with salicylate toxicity after we've given all the necessary treatments? Frequent lab testing must be obtained to assess their clinical status and response to therapy. In addition to serial blood gases and serum salicylate levels, Urine pH and serum electrolytes should be checked every 1-2 to two hours in critically ill patients. Finally, let's talk about how to appropriately disposition these patients. In those with acute intoxication, hospital admission is required for anyone who has anything more than just a little tinnitus. For chronic ingestions, you won't be admitting all these patients since their mortality rate is 25% compared with just 1% for an acute ingestion. In the case of infants, any indication of salicylate toxicity requires hospital admission. As with any case of intentional overdose, a psychiatric evaluation is necessary once the patient is stable. Finally, remember what we talked about earlier in the podcast. You have to make sure that aspirin levels are downtrending before you stop monitoring the salicylate level. The classic mistake is to have a patient who tried to commit suicide on aspirin. They have a therapeutic aspirin level and normal mental status, and they're admitted to a psych floor with their aspirin levels continuing to rise. So make sure to check these levels until they are downtrending. Before we wrap up this episode and summarize, I just want to mention a few things about chronic salicylate toxicity. Chronic salicylate poisoning is usually seen in the elderly as a result of excessive therapeutic administration 
of aspirin for conditions such as arteriosclerosis, arthritis, or other causes of pain. We rarely see chronic poisoning in young children since aspirin is never really given on a daily basis except for Kawasaki's. If we do see it in a young child, the situation is usually more serious than it is in adults. What makes chronic salicylate poisoning tricky is that there is no clear history of an ingestion. You will still see many of the clinical findings as an acute toxicity, but some symptoms such as hyperpnea and nausea or vomiting may be milder or absent in chronic toxicity. For example, shortness of breath or pulmonary edema in an elderly patient may be attributed to a cardiac or pulmonary illness rather than to a toxicologic cause. Therefore, remember to take a careful history and formulate a good differential diagnosis. Lastly, we discussed how the threshold for hemodialysis is lower in a patient with chronic toxicity versus acute toxicity. Some patients with a severe chronic toxicity may even have salicylate concentrations in the therapeutic range. In such cases, be sure to consult a medical toxicologist and nephrologist to help you manage these patients. Let's finish up this episode by summarizing the management and disposition of patients with salicylate toxicity. The approach to these patients is to assess the ABCs, perform GI decontamination as indicated, and reverse the effects of the salicylates. In assessing the patient's ABCs, remember that intubation can worsen the patient's acidosis during the apneic period when sedation and paralysis are performed. As patients can be hypovolemic due to insensible fluid losses, they should receive a 1-2 to liter normal saline bolus. You can use D5NS during this step to provide needed glucose since aspirin can make patients hypoglycemic. After fluid resuscitation, take D5W and add 3 amps of sodium bicarb, which is 150 ml equivalents, to make an isotonic solution. Never add sodium bicarb to normal saline since this will make a hypertonic solution. Titrate the bicarb drip until the urine pH is 7.5 to 8. An alkalotic pH is not a contraindication to bicarbonate therapy, and serum pH should be measured every 2 hours via blood gas to prevent a severe alkalemia with a pH greater than 7.6. Decontamination with activated charcoal should be performed in all patients who are alert, oriented, and cooperative who have ingested aspirin within the last 2 hours. The dose is 1 gram per kilogram, up to 50 grams PO. Hemodialysis is reserved for patients with severe salicylate toxicity. Indications include a serum salicylate level greater than 100 in acute poisoning or greater than 50 in chronic poisoning. Other indications include altered mental status, endotracheal innovation not attributable to coingestants, renal failure, pulmonary or cerebral edema, and clinical deterioration despite the appropriate supportive care. Consult nephrology early in the resuscitation for possible hemodialysis is needed. Patients with salicylate toxicity should be monitored with serial ABGs or VBGs, serum salicylate levels, urine pH, and serum electrolytes every 1-2 to two hours. Most patients with aspirin overdose will be admitted. All infants with salicylate toxicity should be admitted as well. Remember to check salicylate levels every few hours until they are downtrending, especially before admitting the patient to a psychiatric floor. Chronic salicylate poisoning is usually seen in the elderly and can be difficult to diagnose if there is a clear history of ingestion. The classic symptoms such as hyperpnea and nausea vomiting may be milder or absent in chronic toxicity, and the threshold for hemodialysis is lower in these patients than in those with acute toxicity. That wraps it up for this episode on aspirin overdose. Before we go, I want to make another pitch for the EM Basic Project 
and open it up to even more submissions. The EmBasic project is where you submit a script or podcast for publication on EmBasic, such as the great episode we just did, which was written by Dr. Andrea Sarchi. When I first publicized the EmBasic project, I limited it to senior EM residents and attendings. My thought was that I wanted those with more street cred and experience. However, after receiving several quality submissions from more junior residents and fourth-year medical students, I now want to open this up for more people to submit to EM Basic. So if you're a fourth-year medical student, EM intern, resident, or attending, please contact me and send me your scripts to record or podcasts to publish. If you are a fourth-year medical student or EM junior resident, my only condition is that you work with an attending at your institution to develop the script or podcast and have them review it before sending it in to ensure a high-quality product. As always, you will get full credit for your work, and you will get the chance to share it worldwide with lots of listeners. As a preview, this Sunday, July 27, 2014, is the third anniversary of the Ian Basic Podcast, and I'm working on an extra special episode in format. Look for it sometime next week. I will say that it's about my favorite topic, chronic back pain. Just kidding, it's on airway, of course. Finally, with the new academic year comes new listeners, so if you joined the podcast in the past few months, welcome. If you like what you hear, please tell your colleagues and leave a review on iTunes so we can get the podcast out to even more listeners. As usual, if you have any questions or comments about the podcast, you can email me at steve at embasic.org, go to embasic.org and leave a comment, or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Until next time, this is Steve Carroll for the Basic Podcast, signing off.